There's a lot of excitement and fervor in the opportunity moment for me where I was like, okay, I got to do this. Even though I'm a single mom of two kids, like how do I, you know, create this new space of being, you know, a female CEO with that, as well as entering into this new position in a very, very great market and creating something that's sort of pre-revenue research phase and uh, talk about strength. You had to dive down. I had some dark nights of the souls being like, who cares? Why do this? There's no reason to do this. I don't want to do it. I, I'd rather just watch my kids. And then you go, well, but I really need to do this because what it signifies isn't just about being a female CEO. I think, you know, it's really about what it represents for myself and my own personal individuation process. And also really when that inner critic hits going, but why not me? Welcome to The Climb. I'm your co-host, Michael Moore. We are joined today by a wonderful father-daughter combo, co-founders of Kimosabi Mescal. We have Jim Walsh and Ashley Walsh. I'm excited to talk to them today. It's a wonderful story that starts from origins with chocolate manufacturing in Hawaii to agave in Mexico to more recent ventures in psilocybin in California. We'll travel to Zacatecas, We'll talk about the origin of Kimosabe, and I'm here to welcome our trusted friends, Jim and Ashley. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, Good to be great here. Intro. <laughs> yeah, great intro. Well, thank you. So, you know, I've gotten to know you guys uh, in, in several calls over the last few months, and I wrote down a couple of words that just seemed to resonate as I got to know you guys, and and certainly the 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 foundation of the word kimosabe and and that being trusted friend i just feel like i've already gained two trusted friends so i would i would just like to first of all thank you for that and then you know we we've we've shared and so the words i wrote down were spirituality purpose drive determination and family and so i'd like to just start there with describing the relationship between the two of y'all and how you started out Maybe, Jim, we'll start with you and how you got into business and then how you brought your daughter in with you. Well, it goes a long way back because my first business was when I was eight years old selling fresh fruit at a uh, roadside in Wisconsin summers when all the tourists would drive by. And there'd be this cute little blonde kid selling little things of raspberries, and I'd sell out within a half hour. And then I'd then I'd have my three brothers bring the rest of it from the from the garden and give it to me. I was the front man, and they were the labor in the back. And we would do a couple thousand dollars a summer. When I was eight, and I got the taste for it. I love that concept of working with people, your own business, your own ideas, setting your own timetable. You know, being in charge of the risk and reward that comes with that. And from that point on, I don't think I went more than three, four years without a new business idea that I tried and, and successfully. I was telling a cattleman yesterday when I was a senior in high school, I had a 4.30 in the morning job getting up in the cold winters of Wisconsin and going out to the cow barns and feeding the veal cows. And uh, the owner had a heart attack. And for about three months, I was running this business with with 400 head of veal cow, which I had no idea what I was doing. 
but enjoy in the end really enjoyed it you know because again you got to interact with new people you got to meet new people new experiences and you know we were talking before we went on the air about risk reward you know always taking that that step beyond where you think your capacities take you is the that's how at least that's how i learn in life that's how i find out the capacities i have as an individual um I, one of my old friends who was a sports commentator for years he'd been a coach of a NCAA basketball team that was a miracle team from Marquette University. Al McGuire was his name. And he said, you know, we're not made to be in safe harbors in life. We're made to take our boats out in the rough waters and see what we're made of. And uh, that's absolutely what I feel um, uh, being in business and creating businesses uh, is all about. So for me, that's the, the, the quest or the climb, I guess, is what you call your podcast. I mean, that really is the purpose of life. Well, I, I'm laughing hearing about and remembering that story of my dad selling fruit back then because years later, my dad's best friend, his daughter becomes my best friend from Wisconsin. And she and I start selling the corn of their family farm <laughs> on the roadside in Wisconsin, along with bracelets we made. Shockingly, the corn sell, sold better than the bracelets did <laughs> in the middle of Wisconsin. <laughs> And fresh lemonade. And uh, we joke because years later, we looked at how we were taking what was actually their family's profit of their corn and selling it for like a buck for 12 years of corn on the roadside. And people were coming, taking as much as they can. So I didn't quite have the business acumen. I, I mean, I guess maybe I did just realizing that family was going to give this to me. and I could sell it for a dollar and use the dollar later for whatever we were buying. Um, but funny to think that actually the origin stories, not really recognizing until really this moment, it was very similar in Wisconsin selling roadside fruit and vegetables. I think it, and we were also, we were talking right before we went live too, just of, you know, geography, right? And, and choosing to be where you are, where you raise family or where you do business. I think it's such a, an overlooked phenomenon how much that can influence you i mean to to share a little bit jim my my upbringing was synonymous um we had an organic farm in dripping springs and we were the main supplier to whole foods when they had one location on south lamar in austin i just thought that everybody woke up early in the morning and tended to 162 chickens like i didn't know any different you know and it was it was hard work but i just thought that's what that's what you were supposed to do and then similar to starting to understand the value of a dollar in hard work, we were open to the public on the weekends. And it was my brother and I's job to count up the bushels of whatever. Um, we had a lot of raspberries. We had a lot of peaches. We had a lot of corn. Um, I couldn't eat okra until probably college because I picked so much of it and it would make me itch and I didn't like it. Um, but we were open to the public and, and you, you learn that value of welcoming somebody into your business and making them feel safe and appreciated and, and in exchange for that they're buying something from you and that certainly uh developed early on my my sense of wanting to work with people well i think you know to your point about kind of pushing yourself out of safe harbors as a kid that was really an aspect. I mean, I know Brene Brown has now exploded over this concept of vulnerability, 
um, and recognizing how what my dad kind of pushed us to do throughout my youth was to be vulnerable in spaces that were really uncomfortable. And there were, you know, a few defining moments of that. One of them outward bound life until 15 was pretty easy. I didn't really have to push myself. There was no, it it didn't, you, you didn't understand the purpose of this. And um, I think I was talking about it with one of the Gen Next members of hitting the next gear. Like, what was that time in life where you hit the next gear? And Outward Bound was that. It was a three-week program where we were sent out into the Three Sisters in Oregon. And we had one week of whitewater rafting and then two weeks of camping. And the first week of whitewater rafting is kind of cruising. You know, you are setting up camp. And it is out in the wilderness. But once you hit the eight, nine miles a day hiking with your own backpack of whatever pounds, I guess, 50 maybe at that point. And then it was into the cold mountains. It was, I think, at that point, 40 degrees, even in the middle of June. And so hiking with shorts during the day, but then freezing at night. And by the end of it, my, my name at that time was called The Princess. <laughs> and uh, there was I think one of the reports on it was like, you know, Ashley didn't quite understand group connection until the end and participating. But it was like as soon as that did actually click in, it was it was sort of like a two prong thing where it was like the group participation as well as my own willpower. Things changed in terms of internally and externally for myself. And it's what I wrote my whole college essay on. And I really believe that was such a pivotal change in my life of understanding the next gear for myself. And it was based off of forcing this vulnerable moment. I didn't want to be away for three weeks in the middle of the wilderness and, you know, really pushed you to your limits. And, but realizing, you know what, that's all a state in your head. And, um, it was, you know, still one of those memories I look fondly on and, will probably pursue for my children because I do think if you don't understand willpower, you don't understand. And, you know, again, it's the two pronged approach of vulnerability of getting yourself into a position where, you know, you can do it and then putting yourself into that next gear of of your will and you can do it. Life becomes a very different state in that regard. And I think that really shifted for me. And then there was many other small moments where there was a lot of pushing, you know, go out and get my first, um, internship. I call, he had me call this woman I met from Donna Karen at a summer retreat. I met her at once. And, you know, we had this class together and he was like, you're going to call her until she answers the phone. And I remember she answered the phone and I swear it was probably two weeks straight that he would have me every day. He's like, have you called her yet? Have you called her yet? So I'd call her every day. And finally, she answered her phone. She's like, you got me. You finally got me. What do you want? And I said, well, I, I'd like an internship at Donna Karen. She's like, all right, you got it. And again, that the trajectory of life, I ended up having this internship in New York, first time living there. And then that's, sprung into having an internship in London, which I was the first intern ever at Donna Karen in London. So all those vulnerable moments pushed me into a path that obviously was something that I wouldn't have been able to write the script of had I never pursued just calling a woman 
two weeks in a row. So sure. thank you. I forgot your name, but thank you if you're listening. <laughs> Jim, is is some of that push that she's talking about, was that your role as a father? Yeah, you know, I think um, the dad, being a dad is not too different than being a boss. And uh, I think that role, <laughs> uh, that, that, that responsibility that comes with the molding of people that are, you know, that, you're, that you love or care for, um, I, you have to think, figure out what the values are that are important to you. And self-reliance is an important one for me. Thinking on your feet, being true to yourself, finding out who you are first, which you really don't know until you take that boat out in the deep waters. You know, and uh, finding out who that is, who that person is. And some make it some really stupid mistakes along the way and paying the consequences for them and going, that wasn't a good idea. I don't want to do that again. And you know what? It hurt people or it, it didn't end well. And, uh, you know, so all along the way, I think you've had it too. I know uh, most people I talk to have that one book or that one teacher that experienced with Boy Scouts or with Little League. Or something along the way, you know, we stand on the shoulders of everybody before us. We learn a little bit. My father was a small town doctor. He operated out of our house. So in a way, he was a small businessman. I watched him pay the bills and do this and fix his stuff and do all that. And family is an important model. So I wanted to model for Ashley that same, I call it the Boy Scout values. Right. No, and it, so, yeah. it's interesting. It, it's a balance too, right? Like everything in life. I mean, I've found that sometimes my daughters need that extra push, but sometimes that extra push can be met with them getting a little older and having a pretty good definition of who they are and pushing back. And so it's, I think whether it's 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 life and, and family or business, it's just that constant back and forth and trying to find that happy medium that allows you to get into that next gear. But then maybe you try to go for third or fourth gear and your engine isn't ready for it and you start revving in the red and you got to back up and recalibrate and kind of figure out where that balance is. Well, I think boundaries are, boundaries are an important thing. You know, Boundaries define where we begin and, and where the group stops. And that is extremely important for kids, for adolescents, even for um, young adults to figure out they're not their parents, you know, they're not the environment they grew up in, that's influence on them, but they have to go out there and find themselves. Well, I think, I think to that, the um, individuation and individuality was such a strong pursuit within our family model. And I'll say, you know, that is for me a really critical point for my two boys as well, in terms of choosing parenting styles of, you know, really understanding what I wanted to do was usher in their individuality and guide them on the right process for who they are. And, you know, that's obviously learned from my family patterning. And I believe that a strong suit because I feel critical thinking is you know, one of the most important things to have available to me. And if my kids can't do that, they're not going to have self-reliance in the world. And uh, I think that's, that's, (laughs) (laughs) these days, that's a really good thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a constant family conversation and dynamic. And again, to that point of why 
escaping California becomes kind of a critical point. And, and you brought up a really interesting point I want to touch on for a second before we, we get into the, the history and maturation of all the, the various businesses. You know, there's a lot of studies out there now that say that, that the generation of children, Ashley, that you and I are raising are going to be the first that really learn more from their technology, like I like to call it their dumb box, but technology, uh, than, than, their, than their parents. Whereas I grew up, and it's, it's a big passion behind our, our podcast, of learning from storytelling. And you sat down at the end of the evening after dinner, and the oldest person, who's usually my grandfather, started telling stories, and we were all supposed to sit there and listen. Sometimes I was into it, sometimes I wasn't, but if I decided to tune in, I always learned something. And so I think, you know, it, it's on us to almost police that technology and what they gain access to because, you know, the way these programs are written, it's to attract them in and keep them focused on that as long as they possibly can. And I'm sure you've noticed it. If they focus too long, trying to pull them out of it is very difficult. It's very alarming. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very similar to an addiction in a way. Right. You know? And, you know, with Ashley's new business, uh, looking at how neurotransmitters upregulate and downregulate in the presence of a stimulus, you know, you can see very clearly they, you know, you see the Senate hearings on the dopamine switch, you know, that Facebook has investigated dopamine release and what it takes and how many times a minute it has to be done and, and these types of things. Um, it, it makes sense. And if you want people to be attracted to what you're doing, you put in things that attract that release or shutting down of the neurotransmitter, whichever you're trying to do. And it's really a beginning science. And uh, the more we know about that, I think you've hit it. The more we, we make sure that things are lived in balance, you know, is, I mean, it's, it's an old bromide, but it's a good one, you know? Um, And, you know, I think part of, I always love the thing where they say, you know, the 20s are for trying, the 30s are for earning, the 40s are for leading, you know, the 50s are for uh, giving advice, 60s are for being on boards. You know, they do those those decade learning chunks of, of information. I think that's really true. I think you need to take those risks early on, find out the middle path is better. You know, how does that middle path educate you? How can you then pay it forward, you know, um, we had, uh, my wife was uh, one of four, very tight-knit family, raised by a very young mother. Uh, her mother and dad got married when they were 17 and 18, northern Wisconsin, farming communities. Um, and they were terrific mom and dads. But they really created this really, really tight organizational unit around the four kids. They were the kids. You know, you were expected to have the same everything. You know, you're, you're same clothes, same values, same enjoy the same things. And of course, that doesn't work with four individuals. You know, you get individuals who want to be different. And so it worked for two of them, didn't work so much for the other two. But I often laugh because we would send Ashley and her sister up to them and they'd raise them in, when the time they were there. They'd be very different than we were. And one of the main arguments was access to the TV set. This is back, you know, 30 some years ago and the kids wanted to watch TV and grandma didn't want them to have the tuner to the TV. And, and you can see then the 
draw that that TV set had, you know, almost like a drug. You know, I want that. They were very happy going outside and playing around and doing other stuff, but it was, and, you know, we always talk about paying it forward. They were terrific grandparents, you know, so we try to do the same thing. We try to pay it forward to our grandkids. So they think of the same thing, which is family matters. You know, um, time is important. You know, you got two things to spend in life, time and money. And uh, to me, the best example of commitment is spending time with someone. You know, money's easy to spend. And so all those things just build that, that concrete sense that people are important. At the core of everything, I think that's, that's the, for me, the message of life. I, I, and to touch upon one of those areas that we were talking about, the moderation element is also something because obviously being in Mescal, in chocolate, now psilocybin, <laughs> we obviously err on the side of moderation versus we talk a lot about sometimes the puritanical nature that, that springs up in the U.S. about people like drinking's bad. You know, all of a sudden it's the black and white kind of binary thinking that happens in this. And I think what's really cool is there is a shifting happening where there's some opening. Hey, maybe maybe there is this moderation component. Mental health is really about balance. It's really about, you know, obviously the conversations of psilocybin and the plant medicines in general becoming a tool for helping to find some balance within neurotransmitters to your inner state. We also look at Mescal and going, you know, enjoying a cocktail at night is not that bad, but it's turned into this terrible thing that if you have a drink at night, you're an alcoholic. And I just think we've really gone so far in this black and white thinking that beauty of the family values and also the choices we've made for companies, it's really about creating guides and those trusted friends to be there with you that you recognize these things aren't bad. It's really about the state and relationship you have with them. And that's the constant conversation that I think moderation being a part of it, but really about what is our relationship to people, to things and to um, around us creating the community. It really involves all parts of this, of having balance and an understanding of our relationships and those conversations around it because things get demonized easily things get thrown into the bad camp or the good camp and i think to the point of critical thinking that's that's kind of what you see a lot is a lot of the black and white thinking and not a lot of the gray which is where most of life is no that's that's a really good point and you you bring up uh a really interesting topic on the various products that have created your different businesses. I mean, chocolate certainly stimulates something in the brain. Mescal definitely stimulates something in the brain. And, uh, and psilocybin does as well um, in a much different way. And so, but you, you go back and just look at history of different times in mankind discovering different spices. And then that creating a geographic curiosity that created exploration. I mean, it's, it's been, then you get into medicine and World War One and World War II and all of these horrific events that were occurring that spurred the, the creation of something to help solve problems. To me, what you guys are doing is no different. And so 
maybe let's dive into the business a little bit and start with with you, you tell me, but maybe chocolate in Hawaii and then how that's morphed into what you guys have going on currently. Well, I think since you had three, you had these words of spirituality, purpose, drive, determination, and family. My dad has many points of entry for the story. So I, <laughs> I started with maybe we go down the path of spiritual enlightenment and what, why. I'm Durley on a big guru. For, I don't know. All my yeah. life. No, you know, the, um, for me, um, I was dead set in my 20s to be Howard Hughes. And Howard Hughes was my hero at the time, not because of who he was as a person, but because of what he did, how he combined businesses, floated the first Euro bond uh, to buy TWA. He owned the, the uh, RKO Studios at the time, half of Las Vegas, and just seemed to be a guy who could manifest at any level he wanted to. I mean, the the, the uh, spruce goose that he made for the the army in World War II is still the biggest airplane ever made, you know, made out of completely out of wood. And so for, that was fascinating. So I was on my way to doing that. It was in my twenties. I had bought a bunch of companies in Chicago and had a bunch of employees. And uh, on my 30th birthday party, uh, the business editor for the sun times in Chicago does this article. And in those are the days of the two and three martini lunches. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Mostly three. And, yeah, mostly three. And Ed's dead now. Ed Darby is the guy's name. And he loved three. That was his kind of number. And so the the interview was basically all afternoon. And I was there. And he goes, I, I'm not you've done what you were hoping to do. And you're, you're like kind of this mini Howard Hughes. What do you really want to do? And I, I told my, my wife, Marie, afterwards, I said, don't ever let me drink martinis at lunch because I don't know what the hell I was talking about. I was talking about feeding the world through the ocean somehow, and I saw it somehow being this food that made people feel better. And I walked out of there thinking, what a bunch of crap I just gave that guy because I, have, I, have, I don't know where that came from. Fast forward three years later, I have a bad head injury, whitewater rafting in the mountains of Chile. Um, I, I get a revelation up there of purpose. You asked about purpose in life. And I was... You know, I had, as she was already born, that was a wonderful thing, kind of a true North occurrence for me. And, um, but I wasn't happy in the job. The more successful we got, the less happy I was. And uh, so I took this whitewater rafting trip with my father-in-law just to get away up in the 11,000 feet of the Andes and I smashed my head on a rock and I almost died. And so they having me write these death letters, you know, I read it to Ashley. I knew she'd be fine. Just you know, make me proud, that kind of stuff. But I got to this letter to her sister, who was only seven months developed in, in Marie's womb. And I realized, man, I got to stay alive to see this gal grow up, at least know her name. And at that point, it made me realize, if I if I prayed to something, what am I praying to? You know, I had been raised a Catholic, kind of had that beaten out of me in Jesuit boarding school. And um, so I was, I had faith, but not quite sure what that faith looked like exactly. So I'm making this commitment that if I get out of this alive, you know, I'll give back in ways I didn't before. And, and really these life-changing values were bubbling up for me. And, um, but I didn't know who I was praying to. I had no idea, but I had a purpose. And purpose is an amazing thing. It's through a lot of stuff. And the purpose was, you know, to 
get through the event, see my second daughter born, and then we take it from there. And so when I got back and I survived, it took about a month in, in the hospital to recover, and about a year and a half to recover the use of, of about a chocolate chip cookie size of my brain back here. And um, in that year and a half, I went on a spiritual quest because I wanted to find out who I was saying this prayer to. And I didn't find it in traditional religions. I looked in the Buddhism, which is a wonderful belief system for the mind. Um, uh, it doesn't really believe in a God, you know, per se. Uh, believes in a mind. And uh, that was directional for me, but I really found in meditation the ability to connect with something other than me on an internal basis. And when that happened, when that connection happened, then all those external goals like wealth and fame and competition and being the best and all those things just disappeared. And not overnight, but slowly but surely, because that inner relationship becomes then the one unchangeable thing in your life that provides value beyond you. And I think that's always the difficulty is most of the goals we set are ego-based goals. They're about me, not about something other. So in that moment, having lived in Wisconsin all my life, I said, where in the world do we want to live? Okay, it's either Hawaii or Australia. It's Hawaii. You know, what are we going to do there? We spent two years looking at a product that can be marketed, not just sold as a commodity or sold to tourism. One day I'm having lunch with the chairman of the board of Hershey Foods. I say to him, hey, does, does chocolate grow in Hawaii? He goes, you know, no, but we'd really like it to because the Ivory Coast, where most of it grows, is a mess right now. And I said, would you be my technical partner? He said, done. So that was the start of my, I knew nothing about chocolate. I didn't know how it grew. I thought it was a bush that a berry grew on. I found out it's this beautiful tree. You know, Hershey and their plant physiologists and I went around the world looking at cacao all around the world. And we brought back to Hawaii 37 different varieties of cacao. I got Amphac, who was the largest sugar grower, to be my partner and learned about how to make chocolate, you know, how to grow it and make it. And that was really the start of our businesses was, was a connection with the earth, growing a plant, and then making a product from what you grow. Same is true in the agave. We grow the agaves. When that comes, when that ripens, we make a product from it. Same with the psilocybin. Grow the mushroom, make a product from it. So it's this connection to the plant wisdom that's out there. And all three of those plants, agave, cacao, and psilocybin, have remarkable qualities to them that are beneficial to humankind. That's why they've so, been so popular for so long. So that's really, you know, to give you sort of the thumbnail, the spirituality, the family part of it was I moved my whole family to Hawaii so they could live a 1950s lifestyle like I did. You know, no locked doors, you know, barefoot to school, that kind of stuff. And they did. So, uh, Jim, should, thank you for, for sharing that. I um, I was just looking today is is the third on the the 12th of this month would have marked my dad's 76th birthday. And as I've shared with you guys, we lost him to ALS right around uh, Thanksgiving of last year. And just hearing you tell that story, it just felt like he was speaking through you to me. Um, Y'all would have hit it off immensely. I think you're, you're definitely kindred spirits. And so I really do appreciate you sharing that. I feel that. I feel that. You know, that's a, um, a powerful thing between a father and a son. Yeah, yeah. So, so you got the the business going in in Hawaii, and then fast forward how it expanded from there. 
So we were tooling along. I had this picture that I take the kids out to this cacao plantation. They'd be riding the tractors, picking the fruit. They'd have this ruddy complexion from being outside. We'd be eating in a some hacienda outdoor, you know, picking the tomatoes off the vines. That's not the Big Island Hawaii. Hawaii the Big Island Hawaii, where cacao grows the best, is a rough and tumble island. You know, it's not a vegetable farm in Italy kind of thing. And uh, uh, so that didn't, you know, that my, my fantasy of it had to change in the process of that. So we ended up um, uh, farming on the out islands and living on Oahu because that's where the schools were. But enjoying our lifestyle, very much a lifestyle brand. And we were at a uh, sort of a small little fair for local growers at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel on Maui. And Florence Fabricant came by, and I didn't know who she was. She was in the New York Times. And she goes, oh, my God, you're growing this here? Yes, we're growing this here. I want to come out to the farm tomorrow with my photographer and take all these pictures. Okay, then we'll go out. And, and you know, we had a small production. We had, At the time, we had uh, about 10,000, 12,000 trees in the ground. It takes four years for it to even get to the point where it bears. So it had been four, five years we are in the project. She comes out and loses her mind, takes these pictures. She says, I just want to tell you, we're, this is running in a week in the Sunday New York Times. It'll be the cover. And get ready. And I go, what do you mean, get ready? It's just, do you not know about the New York Times? And I go, yeah, I don't know about the New York Times. So it's New York Times. And she goes, your phone will ring off the hook for weeks. She, this is before internet and all that stuff. She said, it was 1995. And she said, uh, I would just get like three or four more phone lines and phone operators and answer the phones. And I go, you're kidding me. She said, nope, guaranteed. And I said, well, can you hold this story for a year? So I got 10,000 trees. I'm trying to build a small little business with top name chefs around the world. Nope, we're the New York Times. We got to report it first. And she did. And we sold out for two years, in two weeks. People, people had to send us a, um, a, a box of chocolate. It was $86 for an eight-pound box. They had to send us the check to get in line. So we had Barbara Streisand, Ronald Reagan. People were signing checks, sending it to us to wait in line. We had a guy send a, his own private jet from Tokyo to Hawaii to get chocolate for his dying mother who had been born in Hilo. And so it, was, it became a celebrity brand. You know, and because there was so little of it, it also became really hard to get. So we had to pivot in our business strategy and say, okay, we have to allocate now. How do you build a brand by allocating? Most of the major American chefs at the time became shareholders in the company. And um, by doing that, they got a guarantee of so much poundage per month. We got a guarantee of their endorsement and their um, telling the story and putting menu items on the, on the menus. And so we, you know, then we became the sponsor of the Pastry Chef Award at James Beard and a number of other kind of things like that. And then in 98, we went public as a company, the chocolate company went public as a company. Um, so for us, it was, we never intended to grow it that big. I didn't want to be in retail. I wanted to be in food service. I wanted this to be a a comfortable lifestyle business, creating a product that had never been made before. Cacao had never been grown in America before. And then in, uh, shortly after 2000, we got a call from Pepsi. How would you like to joint venture your chocolate with a nutritional brand of ours? And, and Ashley is right at the point here where she was deciding, 
uh, whether she wanted to be in the entertainment business or the, or the business side. And so we pulled her over to Connecticut with us to do this venture and created a joint venture between Hawaiian Vintage and Sobe and uh, created the first nutritional chocolate bars that, that were out there that then led to low-carb bars and a bunch of other stuff we did with them. They got bought out by Frito-Lay. But it was uh, that trajectory is kind of how those businesses run. You start out saying, I'm going to go to A to B and you end up in C. Um, uh, but, you know, um, uh, you got to start somewhere and you got to point the directional arrows and then something happens. And you got to be, as an old friend of mine used to say, you got to be prepared to be lucky. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And so that's, you know, I, so I, I was going to draw the dots around to the, the mezcal part. So in addition to that, we decided, partner of mine, that we would take the experience of Hawaii and put it in Mexico and do a social uh, entrepreneur project where we take the poorest people in Mexico, the Hedotariots, partner with them, put in an agricultural park, cacao farm, teach them how to farm cacao. And then because of the weird land laws in, in Mexico, Hedotarians can own lots of land, but they don't own it. It's given to them as a collective by the government. And so they can never um, finance it. They can never use it for resources. They have no access to market, just a bunch of land and very poor people, dirt floor kind of poor people. And uh, so we partnered with this Hedotariat in Mexico and spent 12 years now getting a 1,200-acre agricultural built for park built for them 23 miles of electricity 300 miles of, of irrigation 19 deep wells a significant project and at that point actually came down and um the catholic church had come to us and we really like this model could you do this with agave up in the north so we took a look at it got real serious about it but i didn't want to be connected to that weird land law I wanted land that was privately held. And so we backed away a little bit and then Ashley said, Dad, you gotta look at this again. This industry has a has a really a niche. Um, tequila's well known, but Mescal isn't. Mescal has a cooler backstory, but it has less sales. So there's something wrong with the market there. Maybe you can help that. And that's really she talked me into starting with her um Kiwasabi to fix that dichotomy in the market. And we have the two most, so we grow the two most sacred plants in Mexico, cacao and agave. So maybe we're at heart Mexicans. I don't know. <laughs> Jim, why, why is tequila more well-known than mezcal? They were the first to get their own appellation. I mean, the mezcal is a general term that describes all the distillates of agave. It's like saying wine. And, um, and, Tequila and mezcal were always, uh, tequila is another kind of mezcal. And then um, in the 50s, the Mexican government split the two of them out and called them, you know, one was mezcal, one was tequila. In the 80s, they went to the UN and got an appellation from the UN, the treaty, appellation treaty. And it had a very powerful family behind it called the Beckman family. Beckman owns Cuervo. And uh, they represent about mm, uh, 65% of the total tequila business in the world. And it's a German family that's been in this business for 100 years. And they came in and created a regulatory body called the CRT, 
very, you know, they, they control the labeling, they control the shipping, they control what you can do with a brand to call it tequila. They'll sue you if you use the name tequila in America without being part of that. So that what they do is they, we talked about boundaries, Mike, they set boundaries and they defend the boundaries. And as a result, there's a very good definition of what tequila is in America. Mezcal should be that because Mezcal is actually in a lot of ways more interesting than tequila because tequila only uses one type of agave can only be cooked one way. So you're just going to get, you're going to get a very standard set of flavor notes. Mezcal can use all agaves, basically cook it in any way. And so it's really an artist product, but it was monopolized by um, some people in Oaxaca who um, saw it as their own personal fiefdom and wanted to keep it that way. And so when they got their appellation, they got their controlling regulatory body. It was very much involved in the politics of Oaxaca. And Oaxaca, if you guys know Mexico, is a very different state. They don't really see themselves as part of Mexico. They see themselves as separate because there's 17 different languages that are spoken there. And, uh, you know, it's a very Indian, uh, indigenous people culture. Um, and unfortunately, these guys re retarded the growth of Mescal by making it mandatory to be extremely smoky at the time. And uh, the American palate likes smoke, but not that much. And so what ended up happening is you got a very small group of affectionados who loved it. And everybody else who would push it across the counter and say, that's just too aggressive for me. And it, it was a way to keep the industry very Oaxaca-centric. That has been broken up now. The federal government, stepped, federal government stepped in about a year and a half ago, created new certifying agencies, find that CRM for its practices, has removed the president. A lot of stuff, good stuff has happened that we have been very encouraged by and probably had a hand or two in a little bit. And you know, so I think uh, to answer your question, I think in the next 10 years, you'll see Mescal start to emerge as the feisty younger brother tequila. As opposed, as opposed to an old memory of a bad hangover in college. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Let's let's pivot a little more to the story side of of y'all's relationship, Ashley. What was kind of that first day like when you came on board to join Jim? W was there any kind of point where you realized you needed to set aside or you needed to create a clear line between your familial relationship, father-daughter relationship, and the business relationship that was coming in? Because I know it's pretty common knowledge that, you know, it's a tough thing to go into business with your family because they are your family. And at a certain point, you have to make tough decisions towards a business. What was that first kind of first iteration like when y'all first started working together? Well, I'll say the one of the first times my dad recalls what I wanted to do when I was younger, he, I, I don't know if it was you who asked or somebody else asked, Ashley, what do you want to do when you're older? I said, I want to do what my dad does, tell other people what to do. <laughs> so I was already prepped and ready to join go. in on, uh, you know, what dad did. And I started pretty young. I mean, I was doing internship work for um, Hawaiian Vintage Chocolate at 13, 14, and so my connection to the family business, also because he was running the office out of our home, there's already a built-in element to working together, whether or not you think of it that way, because you're not, you're obviously a kid 
you're seeing the people who are coming in and out of business. They're a part of your community, part of your family. So that was already built into our family culture. And so once I started developing my own interest into this, um, you know, I was already, our relationship was pretty fluid and already had those elements of really business centric at certain times and then very family centric. And so because you have a home office, those boundaries are a little convoluted, but they're a part of your life. And as entrepreneurs, that's always going to be part of the positive and the negative. Um, but because it's always been a part of the family dynamic, I don't think there was anything different I had to learn or set boundaries around. And I think the difference really was more about us becoming partners versus me working for my dad. So Kimosabe was the the differentiation point for like, hey, I want to do this with you, not for you. And that was really a dynamic shift. And I think, you know, that's asserting my own personal voice and sometimes being okay and comfortable that I'm going to think differently than my dad is. And that, you know, from growing up with obviously a very sagacious father, there's a lot of belief that he knows better. And so that's a personal journey of going, well, you know, sometimes maybe I know differently. It doesn't mean better or worse. It just means differently. And so ultimately what we've developed over this course of time has been a really good dynamic of being, you know, at certain points, my dad, really the big visionary and me kind of that producer manager type. And so that those two voices work really well in tandem. And um, I think you know, the, the issues of working together really more come down to the point of like personal sense of turning it off when you're together. And the beauty of having kids is they kind of force you to do that. And so now that I have, you know, a 15 month and a three-year-old when they're around, that's just shut off. You, you can't really, there's not a lot of ability to talk about things for a long period of time. Um, but yes, I think the, I think the, finding my own voice and becoming partners was the hardest shift for me internally. And um, because I never really had much resistance from my dad having my own voice, but it was a lot of, you know, if you're going to say they, who's they, you know, dive into these thought processes. You can't just kind of be intuitive. You have to be articulate. You have to understand where you're coming from. So what it ultimately did was give me the awareness on how to find my own voice and how to do it with um, the ability to debate that point, because that's that's the constant in the family dynamic is, you know what, I, I'll listen, but it better be well stated and it better have a lot of good understanding beneath it, because if it doesn't, I'm going to find the way to knock that argument down and not because I want to be right, but because we want to have good dialogue to understand the right direction for the company. And, you know, um, for us, ultimately, a lot of that also resides in family beliefs and values. And so that's always the undercurrent in a lot of these conversations and the beauty of coming from a family you already have built-in family values and beliefs that, for us, are in line. I can tell you a little anecdote here. Uh, it just occurred to me. 
actually been a bit of a rebel in certain areas. And um, in, we have also have a research company that's private that we do research on mind-matter interactions. And we've done it since 2008, and the Dalai Lama has been a part of it since we started. And on one occasion, we had a, a private lunch for him that we put together and uh, we had chefs make food for him, and and you know they're they're very his handlers are very um, um, set up boundaries. You know, don't touch him unless he touches you, and you know you know don't take a picture of him, and you know this kind of stuff. And so um, the meal was over, and and it, we were laughing because he really enjoyed the veal roast we had made for him, and everybody said, no, 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 you can't feed him meat. And um, and he said, no, 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 the way the deal is, is that you can't kill the cow for me. If the cow's already killed for other purposes, I can eat. And and it, we were kind of laughing about it. And Ashley comes up and puts her hand on the Dalai Lama's shoulder and starts telling him, um, kidding him. He starts laughing. And she says, come on, let's get everybody together for a picture, right? And so he's in the middle of it, hamming it up for the picture. <laughs> she's got, you know, She's moving him around. He's laughing, having a great time. And of course, all the handlers are horrified in the <laughs> back room that she's treating him like a client, you know. And he, to this day, I mean, it's, it's a memorable thing. So it's um, she's has her own mind and often a very good direction. <clears throat> so let's let's focus on that for a second because going back to the words that I threw out at the beginning, Ashley, and listening to you, I think I'd add another one, which is strength. Like, where where do you get? that resolve that when you speak, you're so sure of yourself. And it's like, we asked you a question and I feel like the response you have three weeks to think of, but you're just right off the cuff. You're, you're that confident in your answer. Where does that come from? Well, first I'm going to take that moment to absorb the compliment because that is lovely. Thank you. I appreciate that immensely. You know, it's an interesting question in, a underlying thought process that I've been trying to understand and digest myself. Um, years ago, I decided I really wanted to become a mentor for young girls because I, I did understand that there was a self-confidence that I had within myself at a very young age. I wrote an article about this at one point. About three months old. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't write at three months old. I mean, okay, I'm not a... <laughs> A genius. Let's get, let's go there. But I, I had a, a, something my mom had saved a little piece of paper from five that just wrote, I love me. And I think the basis of it is, is true love for yourself. And if you don't have that, there's no strength, there's no courage that you can build on, you know, Sam and, um, how you build that resolve and inner strength, I think is such a, huge and momentous conversation and task, obviously with kids and Michael, you and I have talked about this, like how do we build those foundations? And, you know, love becomes this very, you know, kind of mystical conversation. Like, I, you know, I hate the taglines, like just love, you know, like, okay, that's, what does that even really mean to most people? Because love has such different terms to it. And I think, Again, the what I got from my parents obviously sets a pretty strong foundation 
Um, so I think that was the beginning course to understanding and loving myself. But I think the really deep diving, the individuation of becoming. I mean, I went through a, a very hard divorce while pregnant during COVID. So I spent a lot of internal um, time digesting and understanding how do I set foundations for my kids? What is, you know, what happened in that moment that I was not seeing correctly? And when you have to really dive into your own grit and your own um, resolve because you have kids relying on you. And my dad talks about true North for me, it was really finding purpose of like my purpose in life is to be the foundational guide for these kids. And if I'm not strong, if I'm not clear, there's no way my kids are going to believe me. So I have to find that resolve within myself. So it was really the purpose of, of understanding my kids need to see a strong mother a strong, competent person who understands and believes in herself and loves herself and is joyful and fun because, you know, you could be strong and militant. I don't want to be stoic. I want to have, you know, joy to me as well. So it was really about what was that mother visual and foundation I wanted to have for my kids and strength was one of them. That's beautiful. And so Backing up just a second, because I think it's an interesting pivot that you you chose. <clears throat> you were in the entertainment business, and I did a little research and, and saw some of that. But tell me how that – give us some insight into that and what you were doing, and then the pivot into Mezcal. You know, I, I – <laughs> a lot of pivots. Um, I, I will sort of summarize my time in acting – um, as a real understanding of being vulnerable. And um, I keep coming back to that word because I think it, you know, obviously, again, Brene Brown has, has spoken it better and talked about it better than I will. But I do see how that moment in my life of becoming an actor and starting to, to expose myself as opposed to, again, i I was called princess at one high school. I was called ice princess. So you can see that I had a shell around me that people thought, you know, I, I kind of performed in this perfect way of exposing myself and my faults and being open and comfortable with that. Acting really gave me a platform for that as well as just media training. So the pivot to do it Ultimately, what I gained from it was very different than the reason I entered it. Why did I go into it? Who knows? You know, who knows why anybody pursues a, a creative field like that? It's just you're kind of drawn to it. But I look back and see the the beauties that I gained from it was, you know, learning to produce for myself because I even before, you know, most of the YouTube stuff was out, I was writing comedy for myself because I wanted to be a comedian. And, you know, I, I understood then the foundations of creating a business for myself. In a lot of ways, I was an entrepreneur. I, I became quite successful as making good money at it. But then I kind of realized I'm not really pursuing this for the love of acting anymore. Now I'm just kind of doing and finding myself in a cycle of auditions and booking. And, you know, I didn't like being on somebody else's schedule. So 
sort of the real entrepreneur within me goes, wait a minute, you're not in control of this anymore. And I don't like that. And in fact, um, Chef Gordon was sort of a mentor slash uncle of mine. And he was my dad's business partner in Hawaii. And it's actually the front of his uh, super mensch documentary was he was really saying like, Ashley, I hope you don't go into acting because what would be better for you is to be the person with the money creating this because you'll get the front lines. You know, you'll get the front row to the seats at the movie. Acting's going to break you down. And obviously I didn't listen at first, but when I came back to understand what that meant, I realized, oh yeah, I want to be in charge of my future and being an actor in that the way that I was didn't allow for that. So I had, 35, I guess it was, said, okay, I, I need a change of careers. I've worked with my dad a lot. I've done acting, but I'm really interested in psychology. So I started a master's in psychology. It's sort of, you know, once the, you kind of open the universe up and say, I'm ready for a change, interesting things fall in at that point. And that was that moment that my dad started talking about kemosabe, or actually he wasn't talking about kemosabe, he was talking about agave. All of a sudden, my kind of ears sprung up. And actually, as I'm telling this story, I'm like, oh, my God, this is the exact thing that happened with Interstate as well, the company that I'm forming currently, was my my sort of radar went up going, this is an opportunity that I want to be involved in. This sounds really interesting. It's my opportunity to partner with my dad. It's in a, a arena that I'm really interested in. I think, you know, I should do this. And at that point... I just recall the excitement and fervor around it and going, okay, dad, I want to, I want to partner with you on this. And then that was kind of it. Then at that point, I started doing research for about a year in LA, talking to bartenders, trying to understand the marketplace and recognizing, you know, Mescal has this mystique to it, the romanticism around it, but it doesn't have you know, consistency. It doesn't have a good price tag to it. It's, you know, kind of hard to access because people are scared of it in the sense of like, I don't want to seem dumb. I don't really know about it. Maybe a bartender will, you know, give me a taste of it. But a lot of them had a very gasoline flavor to it back then. And so our goal then was solve those problems. And so that was really the journey to Kimosabe was creating something that was accessible, consistent, had a good price tag, and something we wanted to drink. And that was, <laughs> yeah, that that sort of being the first and foremost. My my dad said many times to my frustration, but now very thankful for it. I'm not going to put this product out if I don't like it. We're not just going to put out a product. And so that journey was really a lot of bad tasting mezcal <laughs> and. A lot of like, you know, this isn't going to happen. And, you know, being a young entrepreneur at that point, I felt really frustrated a lot. Like, why is this not happening fast enough? Let's just do it. You know, we, we can pretend that it tastes good and a lot of those assumptions. But thank God we waited for finding the right place and time and taste to create Kimosabe and, um, you know, through many iterations, finally, when that first flavor hit, I cried. And uh, I was like, oh my God, we did it. We, oh my God, this is happening. Here it goes. And um, from that point forward, Kimosabe was born. And, uh, you know, definitely fascinating to look at the business plan we wrote because 
though it's kind of ventured in many different ways, it's it's kind of stuck to the path that we laid out before it. And I think the understanding of writing a business plan like that became so, it's intention setting. And I really, as an entrepreneur, you know, my dad and I have been talking about this a lot recently, you know, the world or the universe was created from nothing. So if the universe is created from nothing, anything else can pop out of, you know, your mind into existence. And the understanding of that is what, you know, I have to kind of hold on to as I start venturing into forming my own company and moving away from being partners, but being my own CEO and founder of Interstate, the psilocybin whole mushroom company. There's a lot of excitement, fervor in the opportunity moment for me where I was like, okay, I got to do this. Even though I'm a single mom of two kids, like how do I, you know, create this new space of being, you know, a female CEO with that as well as entering into this new position in a very, very gray market and creating something that's sort of pre-revenue research phase and um, talk about strength. You had to dive down. I had some dark nights of the souls being like, who cares? Why do this? There's no reason to do this. I don't want to do it. I, I'd rather just watch my kids. And then you go, well, but I really need to do this. Because what it signifies isn't just about being a female CEO. I think, you know, it's really about what it represents for myself and my own personal individuation process. And also, really, when that inner critic hits going, but why not me? Who, I mean, if, if it's not me, who else will it be? And this is my journey. And this is what I want to do. And I find this exciting. So join me on that path. And as soon as I can think in that headspace, it's amazing things that start springing forth. So bringing us full circle to today, tell us about where our listeners can find out more on Kimosabe and Interstate and, and where is it all headed? Well, the um, we're in the process of becoming a public company. I think we talked about that a little last time. And both companies will come out of this process as public companies, both uh, chemo, as it'll be called, because uh, that's going to be the stock symbol, chemo. And, um, K-I-M-O. K-I-M-O. <laughs> right. And, and um, although this is what you talk about, a little antidote here, how the partnership works between daughter and father. Early on in the skull, we had a marketing guy who thought it'd be a great idea that to uh, dress up a bunch of hot nurses and go around with IVs and chemo, having chemotherapy hours at uh, you know places like Google down in Santa Monica and all these places, right? Um, Ashley goes, no, Dad, we're not going to do that. This isn't tequila of the '80s, you know. That's such old school, and she was so right. But at the time, I thought, oh, cute idea, you know. Let's have some fun with it. But it was the, both her values and her sense of the current times. You know, that that as an older guy, I'm kind of stuck in the history and she's more forward. So that really works well, that dynamic. Uh, but as we go public, you know, she's going to encounter a whole new world that, you know, she's going to be a, uh, setting a trend for you. You're in a, in a business like cannabis was five years ago, you know, where people didn't know what was going on. This one's very different. This one has, or, you know, at the core of it has plant wisdom at the core of it. You know, this isn't going to be Snoop Dogg and hanging out with the boys at the end of the day. This this is going to be consuming an, um, a, 
a wisdom plant that's going to help your mental health. And that's a beautiful purpose. You know, Kimosabe uh, is growing slowly into a better for you beverage company. Uh, we made another acquisition. We bought a distillery in Huntington Beach. We're in the process of another acquisition. That's an organic syrup company. And all these are based on why can't we make alcohol better for you? Well, we can actually, um, and we can have it, and we can have that alcohol um, portion controlled in a way that's fun and healthy for everybody. You know, one of the things that happened in the chocolate business when I was in it was the hundred calorie chocolate bar. You know, at the time, school kids had vending machines, they had soda pop and vending machines, and so their lunches would be a can of Coke and a huge Snicker bar. That was about seven hundred calories and mostly sugar. And so the chocolate guys started making the bars to be the size that was 100 calories. Well, you've seen that in the white claws of the world. You know, all those cans have to be 100 calories or less, right? That's why. It's that snackable, better for you thing. And all the retailers are asking, get us a better for you alcohol. So we're creating a new alcohol out of um, the nectar of agave, which has never been used before. A very kombucha-like drink. And that's coming to market. So our goal is to be the next generation beverage company, both alcoholic, non-alcoholic beverages that are better for you. And so that's the, that's the trajectory. As we go public, uh, we'll be on NASDAQ uh, early next year. At that point, there'll be a different CEO here. I'm not a, um, a guy who's um, a, I'm a guy for developing and visualizing and manifesting a business. There are people with better skills than I that are good at running public companies. And I'm happy to find, and we've, we've started the interview process already. So for me, it's a beautiful project. You know, Ashley's spinning off into her own galaxy. You know, I can, I can now take the position of being the wise old man in the boardroom and, uh, um, uh, you know, turn it over to a next generation. Yep. And um, as I sort of move forward in the interstate world. It's an emerging company, as my dad said. The um, we will go public in October as well. And uh, um, in terms of finding us, we will send over websites. Uh, we will be interstates focused for the next two years as we wait to see how laws transition. Obviously, we know Oregon's going to be legal for psilocybin in 2023. Interim period, we're going to be focusing on creating digital therapeutics that um, really create more wellness and well-being, and getting people to have those conversations about mental health and deep diving into the interstate. Back to the whole conversations and purpose behind it was really how do I find a platform for my kids to start understanding all the tools and resources for developing their own personal mental health? Well. If I'm going to create it for them, I should create it for a larger community. And that's really what Interstate is based on. For the naysayers or, or maybe difference of opinion, people, parties, et cetera, out there that would one say, you know, psilocybin's or that doesn't need to become legal, that's bad, and or uh, the the work that you talked about earlier, which is so meaningful, uh, down in Mexico, but shifting work down there and utilizing their workforce. I mean, there, there's a lot of turmoil and, and, and differing opinions about that. How, how would you you answer those claims? Well, I'd actually speak to psilocybin, but the Mexico thing has been, we talked earlier about how you learn best by your mistakes. 
You know, I came down to Mexico with this project in the Yucatan thinking I'm going to bring my plantation technology. I'll bring my Filipino plantation managers over. We're going to put in our high tech cacao fields. You know, we have irrigation technology from Israel. We're going to bring all this in and we're going to help these underprivileged people become in less than one generation. They're going to approach modernity and they're going to be happy because of it. And all because I can export our fabulous American culture down in the jungle in Yucatan. Seven years later, seven million more than I wanted to spend. I'm knee deep in a project that one day I just woke up and I thought, culture always wins. You know, you can't come down and export your culture and think you're going to succeed. And unless you're willing to export everything down there, like a Walmart does, where their system is so ironclad, you know, but in this case, you become the patron. You have to be there for the weddings. If somebody gets sick, you're there for the funeral. You pay for the college education. It's all very personal. You know, the, the culture is very much set up on the hacienda system from the old days. And so we realized that, that at least I realized that my goal of doing good in five to seven years uh, is probably what's gotten every missionary killed since the beginning of time is it takes generations to make changes. And so for Mexico, in terms of creating jobs in Mexico, the first step is create sustainable jobs that are organic in the environment that is only one year more for them. Turn them into high-tech cacao farm farmers was like taking them from earth to someplace in the Pleiades and saying, okay, figure it out. You know, they just couldn't do it. And um, so going slower, being, being um, having your goals be more culturally oriented, I think is a good thing. And I think, we're not taking any jobs into Mexico. What we're doing is we're making the jobs in Mexico more efficient and more likely to succeed because we're giving them access to market they never had before. And uh, as you know, with tequila and now with mezcal, the U.S. market loves agave-based spirits because they are better for you. And, uh, you know, agave spirits are going to surpass whiskey as the second most popular alcohol category next year in the U.S. It being vodka. And tequila spirits or agave spirits. As far you know, as far as the psilocybin thing, do yeah. we need it or not? Well, I mean, I, I would say to the naysayers on this, what's going to shift that will be public policy and science. And uh, you know, the beauty is we have really large um, universities focused on this, from John Hopkins to now Harvard. I mean, you've got guys like that coming into the mix, and it, the old generation who may be afraid of the, you know, so-called negative aspects of it will start to shift because of the um, type of people who are putting their money behind it. And uh, as that moves forward, as we start seeing the research actually come out and showcase that psilocybin is not addictive, it actually does shift the mental landscape from, you know, addiction to depression. It's going to be hard to be a naysayer to something that is being proven to actually work. Um, plus public policy, and it's actually something as a pillar in interstate that I really want to focus on because if it's not legal, it's really hard to do research on it. So that's going to be a focus for me and the company will be to press forward on legalizing and destigmatization 
because for all those people, the understanding getting people educated becomes critical. It's what we had with Mescal. You know, it's a long journey when you're part of the first wave, but, you know, we've now understood that being part of the first wave is about being the educators. And so that's, that's a big critical part of what we'll be doing as well. You know, that's kind of part, part of the family business DNA. When we started the chocolate business, literally people thought chocolate came, the origin of chocolate was Hershey, Pennsylvania. <laughs> or or Switzerland, you know, they don't grow a single bean in Hershey, Pennsylvania or Switzerland, you know. You say, you know, chocolate comes from beans, people look at it like you're nuts. And then we change the industry to think about where the beans come from and that they taste different. That took a long time and there was a lot of resistance to it, you know. And the same thing with Mescal, that it doesn't have to taste like the back end of a diesel truck. It can be an elegant beverage. And that took a while. And uh, I think the psilocybin is going to take actually three to maybe seven years to convince people it's not bad because it was once illegal. You know, um, it, it wasn't illegal for many, 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 many centuries and used effectively in many cultures before we had that knee-jerk reaction in the 70s to Timothy Leary and all the hallucinogens that were going on. And the culture said, don't understand it. Let's just ban it. And now you look at it and go, wow, I'll take MDMA. MDMA is a, it's a, not a plant-based medicine, but in less than 10 sessions, MDMA session with a therapist, cures 90% of all the PTSD problems that are out there. That's just, that can't be restricted. That has to be available to people. It may be in with a prescription and a doctor. I, I get all that, you know, but I'm saying that we see it with the psilocybin worldwide just the amazing results people get from this it, it just it, you can't deny it it's to the betterment of mankind to, to have it be available and that's something we're fighting for so one of the things we ask at the end um it's been a common theme in our podcast i'm going to put it out there but then i want to do it a little differently because the dynamic of the father-daughter relationship that we've been exploring today so there's the saying out there that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And then we flip that around and say, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. And so as you think about this medium, this podcast, capturing your your beautiful story, both as individuals, father, daughter, business partners, turn to each other and you can pick who goes first. And what do you want the other to know about you? Douglas, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap. It's yours now. It's on your shoulder. That's it. That's I'm 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 officially announcing my retirement today. No. Um, <laughs> uh, well, with Ashley, it's all it's always been, you know, that in the end, the people you know are the people that support you, and uh, it's always people before things, and they will support you. Oh, what? No, boy. Feel like that one's gonna like I, I can spring out something but i feel like it, it takes a little thought process on um we're babysitting on sunday yeah exactly <laughs> here's your schedule for the next week well i think i think if if it, in the spirit of um kind of family foundation that you know dad you did a good job building some good foundation that's beautiful 
Well, you all have uh, been so generous with your time. It's an amazing story. I'm glad we got to capture it. And uh, I look forward to continued conversations uh, as we see public policy form with your great efforts. We'd love to have you guys back and continue telling your story. Well, thank you for having us. It's always lovely to be able to converse and spend this time downloading generational history. So I appreciate being able to do so. What a great forum you set up. Thanks for doing that. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.